Section One of The Mask of Anarchy by Percy Bysshe Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. The Mask of Anarchy, a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, now first published with a preface by Lee Hunt. Hope is strong, justice and truth their winged child have found. Revolt of Islam. London, Edward Moxon, 64 New Bond Street, 1832. Preface. This poem was written by Mr. Shelley on occasion of the bloodshed at Manchester in the year 1819. I was editor of the Examiner at that time, and it was sent to me to be inserted or not in that journal as I thought fit. I did not insert it, because I thought that the public at large had not become sufficiently discerning to do justice to the sincerity and kind-heartedness of the spirit that walked in this flaming robe of verse. His charity was avowedly more than proportionate to his indignation, yet I thought that even the suffering part of the people, judging not unnaturally from their own feelings, and from the exasperation which suffering produces before it produces knowledge, would believe a hundredfold in his anger to what they would in his good intention, and this made me fear that the common enemy would take advantage of the mistake to do them both a disservice. Mr. Shelley's writings have since aided the general progress of knowledge in bringing about a wiser period, and an effusion which would have got him cruelly misrepresented a few years back will now do unequivocal honour to his memory, and show everybody what a most considerate and kind as well as fervent heart, the cause of the world has lost. The poem, though written purposely in a lax and familiar measure, is highly characteristical of the author. It has the usual ardour of his tone, the unbounded sensibility by which he combines the most domestic with the most remote and fanciful images, and the patience so beautifully checking, and in fact produced by the extreme impatience of his moral feeling. His patience is the deposit of many impatiences, acting upon an equal measure of understanding and moral taste. His wisdom is the wisdom of a heart overcharged with sensibility, acquiring the profoundest notions of justice from the completest sympathy, and at once taking refuge from its pain, and working out its extremest purposes, in the adoption of a stubborn and loving fortitude which neutralises resistance. His very strokes of humour, while they startle with their extravagance and even ghastliness, cut to the heart with pathos. The fourth and fifth stanzas, for instance, of this poem, involve an allusion which becomes affecting from our knowing what he must have felt when he wrote it. It is to his children, who were taken from him by the late Lord Chancellor, under that preposterous law, by which every succeeding age might be made to blush for the tortures inflicted on the opinions of its predecessor. Anarchy the skeleton, riding through the streets and grinning and bowing on each side of him, as well as if his education had cost ten millions to the nation, is another instance of the union of ludicrousness with terror. Hope, looking more like despair, and laying herself down before his horse's feet to die, is a touching image. The description of the rise and growth of the public enlightenment, upborne on wings whose grain was as the light of sunny rain, and producing thoughts as he went, as stars from night's loose hair are shaken, 
till on a sudden the prostrate multitude look up and ankle deep in blood hope that made him most serene was walking with a quiet mien is rich with the author's usual treasury of imagery and splendid words the sixty-third is a delicious stanza producing a most happy and comforting picture in the midst of visions of blood and tumult we see the light from its cottage window the substantial blessings of freedom are nobly described and lastly the advice given by the poet the great national measure recommended by him is singularly striking as a political anticipation it advises what has since taken place and what was felt by the grown wisdom of the age to be the only thing which could take place with effect as a final rebuke and nullification of the tories to wit a calm lawful and inflexible preparation for resistance in the shape of a protesting multitude the few against the many the laborious and suffering against the spoilt children of monopoly mankind against tory kind it is true the poet recommends that there should be no active resistance come what might which is a piece of fortitude however effective which we believe was not contemplated by the political unions yet in point of the spirit of the thing the success he anticipates has actually occurred and after his very fashion for there really has been no resistance except by multitudinous protest the tories however desirous they showed themselves to draw their swords did not draw them the battle was won without a blow mr shelley's countrymen know how anxious he was for the advancement of the common good but they have yet to become acquainted with his anxiety in behalf of this particular means of it reform the first time i heard from him was upon the subject it was before i knew him and while he was a student at oxford in the year eighteen eleven so early did he begin his career of philanthropy mankind and their interests were scarcely ever out of his thoughts it was a moot point when he entered your room whether he would begin with some half pleasant half pensive joke or quote something greek or ask some question about public affairs i remember his coming upon me when i had not seen him for a long time and after grappling my hands with both his in his usual fervent manner sitting down and looking at me very earnestly with a deep though not melancholy interest in his face we were sitting in a cottage study with our knees to the fire to which we had been getting nearer and nearer in the comfort of finding ourselves together the pleasure of seeing him was my only feeling at the moment and the air of domesticity about us was so complete that i thought he was going to speak of some family matter either his or my own when he asked me at the close of an intensity of pause what was the amount of the national debt i used to rally him on the apparent inconsequentiality of his manner upon these occasions and he was always ready to carry on the joke because he said that my laughter did not hinder my being in earnest with deepest love and admiration was my laughter mixed or i should not have ventured upon paying him the compliment of it i have now before me his corrected proof of an anonymous pamphlet which he wrote in the year eighteen seventeen entitled a proposal for putting reform to the vote through the country i will make an extract or two from it to show how zealous he was on the subject how generous in the example which he offered to set in behalf of reform and how judicious as well as fervent this most calumniated and noble spirit could be 
in recommending the most avowed of his opinions. The title page of the proof is scrawled over with sketches of trees and foliage, which was a habit of his in the intervals of thinking, whenever he had a pen or pencil in hand. He would indulge it while waiting for you at an inn, or in a doorway, scratching his elms and oak trees on the walls. He did them very spiritedly, and with what the painters call a gusto, particularly in point of grace. If he had room, he would add a cottage and a piece of water, with a sailing-boat mooring among the trees. This was his beau ideal of a life, the repose of which was to be earned by zeal for his species, and warranted by the common good. What else the image of a boat brings to the memory of those who have lost him, I will not say, especially if he is still with us in his writings. But it is worth observing how agreeably this habit of sketching trees and bowers evinced the gentleness of my friend's nature, the longing he had for rest, and the smallness of his personal desires. It has been hastily implied in a late notice of him, in a periodical work, that he was an aristocrat by disposition as well as birth, a conclusion natural enough even with intelligent men who have been bred among aristocratical influences. But it is a pity that any such persons should give it as their opinion, because it tends to confirm inferior understandings in a similar delusion, and to make the vulgarity of would-be refinement still more confident in its assumptions. It is acknowledged on all hands that Mr. Shelley's mind was not one to be measured by common rules, not even by such as the vulgar, great or small, take for uncommon ones, or for cunning pieces of corporate knowledge snugly kept between one another. If there is anything which I can affirm of my beloved friend with as much confidence as the fact of his being benevolent and a friend, it is that he was totally free from mistakes of this kind that he never for one moment confounded the claims of real and essential with those of conventional refinements, or allowed one to be substituted for the other in his mind by any compromise of his self-love. I will admit it to be possible that there were moments in which he might have been deceived in his estimation of people's manners, in consequence of those to which he had been early accustomed, but the charge implied against him involves a conscious, or at least an habitual, preference of what are called high-bred manners for their own sakes, apart from the natures of those who exhibited them, and to the disadvantage of those to whom they had not been taught. I can affirm that it is a total mistake, and that he partook of no such weakness. I have seen him indeed draw himself up with a sort of irrepressible air of dignified objection, when moral vulgarity was betrayed in his presence, whatever might have been the rank of the betrayer but nobody could hail with greater joy and simplicity, or meet upon more equal grounds, the instinct of a real delicacy and good intention, come in what shape it might. Why should he have done otherwise? He was Shelley, and not merely a man of that name. What had ordinary high life and its pretensions, and the getting together of a few people for the sake of giving themselves a little importance, to do with his universal affinities? It was finally said one day in my hearing by Mr. Hazlitt, when asked why he could not temporise a little now and then, or make a compromise with an untruth, that it was not worth his while. It was not worth Mr. Shelley's while to be an aristocrat. His spirit was large enough to take ten aristocracies into the hollow of his hand, and look at them, 
as I have seen him look at insects from a tree, certainly with no thought either of superiority or the reverse, but with a curious interest. That quintessence of gentlemanly demeanour which was observable in Mr. Shelley, in drawing-rooms, when he was not over-thoughtful, was nothing but an exquisite combination of sense, moral grace, and habitual sympathy. It was more dignified than what is called dignity in others, because it was the heart of the thing itself, or intrinsic worth, graced by the sincerest idealism, and not a response made by imputed merit to the homage of the imputers. The best conventional dignity could have no more come up to it than the trick of an occasion to the truth of a life. Footnote. The consciousness of possessing the respect of others, apart from any reason for it but a conventional one, will sometimes produce a really fine expression of countenance, where the nature is good. On the other hand, I have seen Mr. Shelley, from a doubt of the sympathy of those around him, suddenly sink from the happier look above described into an expression of misgiving and even of destitution that was extremely touching. It arose out of a sudden impression that all the sympathy was on his side. Sympathy is undoubtedly the one thing needful and final, and though the receipt of it on false grounds appears the most formidable obstacle in the way of its true ascendancy, and is so, yet out of the very spirit of that fact will come the salvation of the world. For when once a right view of it gets into fashion, the prejudices as well as the understandings of mankind will be as much on that side as they are against it now, and the acceleration of good be without a drawback. End of footnote. But if an aristocracy of intellect and morals were required, he was the man for one of their leaders. High and princely was the example he could set to an aristocracy of a different sort, as the reader will see by the following extract from his pamphlet. The late death of an extraordinary man of genius, the delight of nations, and the special glory of his country, has just shown the blushing world what little things could be done for him, dead or alive, by the, quote, great men whom he condescended to glorify. The manager of a Scottish theatre, to his immortal credit. Footnote. Mr. Murray. I remember the gentlemanly paternity of his father's manner on the English stage, and the fine eyes of his sister, Mrs. Henry Siddons, and was not surprised to find generosity in such a stock. End of footnote. The manager of a Scottish theatre, to his immortal credit, has contributed in furtherance of the erection of a monument to him, precisely the same sum as was drawn forth out of the money-bags of a Scottish duke in the receipt of nearly a thousand pounds a day. The sum is the same that is mentioned in the ensuing paragraph from Mr. Shelley's pamphlet. After proposing a meeting of the Friends of Reform for the purpose of recommending his plan to the nation, the author notices the expenses which would probably be incurred and then makes the following offer. I have an income of a thousand a year, on which I support my wife and children in decent comfort, and from which I satisfy certain large claims of general justice. Footnote. By these claims of justice, he meant the wants of his friends and the poor. I do not wish, God knows, to dispute the phrase with him, but such were the notions of this singular, quote, aristocrat, a most equal-sighted fellow-creature. End of footnote. Should any plan resembling that which I have proposed be determined on by you, I will give one hundred pound, being a tenth part of one year's income, towards its object. 
and I will not deem so proudly of myself as to believe that I shall stand alone in this respect, when any rational or consistent scheme for the public benefit shall have received the sanction of those great and good men who have devoted themselves for its preservation. The delight of talking about my friend has led me into a longer preface than I intended to write. I did not think of detaining the reader so long from his poem. Most probably, indeed, I have not detained him. I will, however, make the other and longer extract without further remark. If this pamphlet was the work of an aristocrat, even in the passages where it recommends time to be given for the abolition of his class, he was surely the strangest republican of an aristocrat that ever existed, and had the oddest notions of what was puerile. Footnote. See his works pass him. A multitude of passages might be quoted, such as no aristocrat would write out of mere spleen, or with greater pride of his own. They are too frequent, earnest, and full of thought. If Mr. Shelley met with a gird at things aristocratical in any book he was reading, he marked it as worthy to be noted. I was looking the other day into a Diogenes Laertius that belonged to him, and almost the first passage I met with thus marked was the saying of the biographer's namesake, in which birth and honours are treated with contempt. I am not here begging the question against such things. I am merely recording my friend's real opinions. The only sentiment by which a privileged class is to be vindicated may claim a fair discussion, and the settlement of it be safely left to the growth of the sentiment itself, and its expansion into a freedom from its own necessity. End of footnote. A certain degree of coalition, says he, among the sincere friends of reform, in whatever shape, is indispensable to the success of this proposal. The friends of universal, or of limited suffrage, of annual or triennial parliaments, ought to settle the subjects on which they disagree, when it is known whether the nation wills that measure on which they are all agreed. It is trivial to discuss what species of reform should have place, when it yet remains a question whether there will be any reform or no. Meanwhile, nothing remains for me but to state explicitly my sentiments on this subject. The statement is indeed quite foreign to the merits of the proposal in itself, and I should have suppressed it until called upon to subscribe such a requisition as I have suggested. If the question which it is natural to ask, as to what are the sentiments of the person who originates the scheme, could have received in any other manner a more simple or direct reply, it appears to me that annual parliaments ought to be adopted as an immediate measure, as one which strongly tends to preserve the liberty and happiness of the nation. It would enable men to cultivate those energies on which the performance of the political duties belonging to the citizen of a free state, as the rightful guardian of its prosperity, essentially depends. It would familiarise men with liberty by disciplining them to an habitual acquaintance with its forms. Political institution is undoubtedly susceptible of such improvements as no rational person can consider possible, so long as the present degraded condition to which the vital imperfections in the existing system of government has reduced the vast multitude of men shall subsist. The securest method of arriving at such beneficial innovations is to proceed gradually and with caution, or in the place of that order and freedom which the friends of reform assert to be violated now, anarchy and despotism will follow. Annual parliaments have my entire assent. 
i will not state those general reasonings in their favour which mr cobbett and other writers have already made familiar to the public mind with respect to universal suffrage i confess i consider its adoption in the present unprepared state of public knowledge and feeling fraught with peril i think that none but those who register their names as paying a certain small sum in direct taxes ought at present to send members to parliament the consequence of the immediate extension of the elective franchise to every male adult will be to place power in the hands of men who have been rendered brutal and torpid and ferocious by ages of slavery it is to suppose that the qualities belonging to a demagogue are such as are sufficient to endow a legislator i allow major cartwright's arguments to be unanswerable abstractedly it is the right of every human being to have a share in the government but mr payne's arguments are also unanswerable a pure republic may be shown by inferences the most obvious and irresistible to be that system of social order the fittest to produce the happiness and promote the genuine eminence of man yet nothing can be less consistent with reason or afford smaller hopes of any beneficial issue than the plan which should abolish the regal and the aristocratical branches of our constitution before the public mind through many gradations of improvement shall have arrived at the maturity which can disregard those symbols of its childhood i need not point out to the reader's attention the singular and happy anticipations contained in the above extract neither shall i stop to inquire how far mr shelley would have thought the feasibilities of improvement hastened by the events that have taken place of late years events one of them in particular the glorious three days which it would have repaid him for all his endurances had he lived to see and who shall say that he has not seen them for if ever there was a man upon earth of a more spiritual nature than ordinary partaking of the errors and perturbations of his species but seeing and working through them with a seraphical purpose of good such a one was percy bysshe shelley l h end of section one